Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church, Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. If I could just introduce Colin Barron to you all. Um, Colin has been involved with church planting for a number of years now, and uh, he not only is sort of church planting right now in East Manchester, um, but also, I don't know if you've ever seen Ramsey's Kitchen Nightmares, where Gordon Ramsay goes into sort of difficult kitchens and sorts it out. Well, Colin does the same, but with churches, if you can sort of imagine that. And uh, um, uh, he has a whole wealth of expertise uh, to share with us. I meet pretty regularly with Colin and his team, and uh, I go to serve those guys, but often come out feeling like I've learned much more than I've given. So uh, really looking forward to this seminar. Can we welcome Colin up as he comes to speak? Okay, it's good to be here. Hope you're having a great weekend. Just uh, come over from Manchester. I don't know what the score is. Manchester or Liverpool, anybody know? 2-0-2? Two? Uh, I'm a City fan, so um, one of those things. Don't want Liverpool to win. But. Anyway, uh, I was asked to talk on kind of church site or site planting. And, uh, so I've kind of titled what we're doing, how do we reach cities that are made up of so many cultures and people groups, and I guess virtually every city in the world now is like that, and uh, they're kind of, with the, uh, the movement, the population movement now is massive across the world, and so you just don't find cities that are kind of single ethnic groups, and uh, in a place like Manchester, Leeds will be the same. Not only do you have massive kind of diverse ethnicity, but you also have a, a big diverse of social demographic uh, as well. So where I'm planted in East Manchester, or one of the sites, is in the bottom 5% of the national uh, social demographic uh, statistics, education, crime, uh, employment, massive unemployment, low education, Low, low health, three generations of unemployed, um, difficult to plant into. We're also planted into the city, student land. Um, in student land, we've had about 80 first-time visitors on our uh, site this year. We started with 20 in, the, in September. We started with three the year before. In, in our east site, where we've got about 70 now, I think we have a visitor every month. It gets a little better now. Uh, you you just dig them out. And I want to, uh, in the short time I've got, try and open some of those things up for you. You guys in Leeds are going to be reaching into those sort of diverse cultures. We get some clues from how large supermarket chains like Tesco operate. Because in a sense, they're doing the same thing that we are. They want to reach a lot of people. The more people they can get through their shops, the more profits they make. Okay? So how do Tesco's do it? I used to work for them uh, many uh, years ago, and uh, they've got three kind of ways that they reach into uh, population. One is Tesco Extra. That's the big multi kind of, uh, they do everything in a Tesco Extra. They, you know, you could get a washing machine to a tin of baked beans and everything in between, plus a plasma TV and 
uh, and whatever. I used to live in America. It's a, they're going more like Walmart, which is less food, more white goods and stuff. So that's Tesco Extra. Big outer town or at least big parking spaces where you can go. Then I put Tesco Original because that's the kind of medium size uh, uh, stores, which actually they were closing down when I was uh, about 40 years ago. I used to work in one of them when I was a teenager. And uh, they decided they were too small, and uh, so they were doing away. But they're the kind of ones that you now get um, in communities. Got a car park, but they don't do a full range. They don't do a small range either, but they're kind of medium size. They tend to put them where planning is difficult to get, and it's uh, a bit smaller, but you can kind of walk to it or drive to it, okay? And then they do what is now Tesco Metro, which is, tends to be in, in, right in shopping centers, right in the, next to train stations, uh, right in the heart of communities. These are the big growth engine for a lot of the supermarkets now because they've saturated the big ones. And so Asda's have just bought Neto, I think it is, to give them a, 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 a leap into this world because they see that convenience shopping is on the increase for people, and they're very small, low, kind of, you know, not many goods there, but the stuff that you need, bread, milk, wine, the stuff on a Friday night, a bunch of flowers for your husband or your wife, um, and uh, if you're that way, um, you know, if you want to buy flowers and stuff like that. So, okay, so that's basically how they do it. Honestly, I believe this, that there's some clues there for us as churches, that the reality is we... Uh, need to reach into different people groups, and uh, we need to do it in a variety of ways. There is not one way that's going to uh, actually reach every people group, and uh, that's just important for us uh, to understand. That's why church planting or doing multi-site or different expressions is vital for us if we're going to reach Leeds or The Hague or... Manchester, or any of the big population uh, areas. We have a, a little kind of saying, mainly because one of my colleagues, Tim, is a blogger, and uh, he likes the term hyperlocal, uh, which is now a kind of um, th- uh, blogging thing for uh, where you're doing news for a small community. So instead of the kind of news sheet that does the whole of Manchester, the hyper-local is you're reaching into one segment of society. So it's, uh, the hyper is kind of narrowing down. But, uh, you know, we need to narrow down onto people groups. And we also need, I believe, to be thinking citywide. And I, I actually believe we've got to hold both those intention when we're reaching cities. And uh, so I say I'm just rattling through a little bit to, uh, uh, that's what we are ch- endeavouring to do, is to kind of think local and think city. And uh, at the end, you'll see uh, why I think that is important. And I think it will be very important for you in Leeds here, that you hold both those things. Because a, a building like this helps you be more city-focused, just by the very nature of it. Getting into communities and congregations will push the focus that way. So... Let's, uh, so what I'm going to do, um, I, I teach at uh, 
a theological college once a year on church planting, and I, I actually go into about 10 different ways that you can plant churches. I have a whole morning uh, to do that. I've just taken three or four of those for this afternoon, just as a kind of taster for you to see that actually there are different ways of doing things. And I've uh, put some positives and negatives. And I say, this is just to stretch your minds a little bit, give you a bit of understanding. Is that okay? And uh, it will also help contextualize what you're doing, I think, um, in the city here. And if you're going to church plant other places, then um, it uh, will give you a bit of an idea. Okay, so these are terms that are kind of around if you go on the internet and uh, talk to people. First one is, uh, and in no kind of order, they're just uh, randomly taking these, uh, emergent or house churches. There's a little bit of a kind of upsurge in people who are trying to do house churches. Emergent church is a little bit like a house church, but sometimes has different feel to it. It's very similar. Sometimes they'll meet in cafes, wine bars, uh, uh, and alike. Um, what's the positives of these? They're highly relational, they're organic, and they're incredibly flexible. They're also low resource uh, needed. It's very cheap. In fact, we've just started our th- fourth site. Uh, we pioneer. We have, I kind of start sites this way. We've just started in a, a cafe, cafe, cafe wine bar in the dungeon of it. it costs us nothing as long as we buy a beer or a, a, a coffee as people come in. And uh, in fact, these emergent church guys would look at that and think this is an emergent church apart from we don't stay there. <laughs> we kind of let the thing grow and uh, get into public buildings. We started our city meeting in a vodka bar with three people and uh, ended up now in uh, a, bigger, a bigger hall. Okay, so the negatives, okay? So just uh, as I'm rattling through this, just uh, for, for time's sake, um, can lack profile and also manpower, okay, or people power. Um, the reality is, if you want to do something, even like a soup kitchen or something with kids, sometimes you just don't have the resources, um, also the profile to actually pull it, pull it off, um, can lose the presence of the gathered community. Sometimes these sort of churches give up a little bit, even on worship, because, you know, it, it, it's, it, it does sometimes hard work with just a few of you. Got, if you've got a good musician, it works. If you haven't, then you tend to get a bit discussion-based. This is not total, but occasionally. These are some of the negatives. So if you, um, and, and actually, and this would be absolutely true in the poorer communities, uh, some communities are scared to go into other people's homes, and, uh, which is and it's strange when we, you're working in some poorer communities because they're in and out of each other's homes lots, but people they don't know, they are really scared. And if you offer them a meal, they, don't, they will invariably say no because they don't know how to react in that environment. So what is a highly social group can be highly scared to go into um, somebody else that they don't know much uh, home. So the very kind of essence of it is non-missional. Okay? So please, these are broad brushstrokes. You'll find anomalies in everyone. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? They are, 
uh, just make, get you thinking, okay? There'll be, okay. Incarnational uh, joint projects. What that means is these are joint projects. I put Eden there. We do a lot of joint projects with parachurch organizations like the Message uh, Trust in Manchester that are highly motivated to reach the poor, especially the youth. And so, so um, and there's a number of those in cities now where people are doing joint projects, okay? And basically, incarnational means they're trying to do them into a people group, go and move house, live there, give your life to serving, okay? So it's just shorthand, really, uh, for that. Is that okay? Uh, you understand what I'm, I'm saying there? Is that okay? Um, is that okay? Do you got the feel of that? Say, who knows about the Eden projects that the message do? Okay, good number of you, so that's fine. So, okay, it could be very attractive to motivated people. Um, uh, a lot of people who join these have a heart for spreading the gospel and social change. Okay, so it's, it attracts that type of person. And can have the benefits of being part of a larger network. So, sometimes doing church in these needy areas is lonely. It's, it can be, you know, gutty work, really. And the, uh, to be part of something like the Message tr- uh, Trust or other organizations or other big churches that are doing it is actually just excellent and can stop you kind of being uh, very lonely. Negatives, okay? I guess what I'm trying to do here is just open your eyes a little bit, see some things that are out there, look some positives and negatives, and then what you'll do is you'll transpose some of these into some things that you're doing. Is that okay? That's the name of the game. Can have difficulty in parachuting people into culturally different areas. It's one thing having the, <laughs> the kind of desire to do it. There's another thing when you get there and have to incarnate yourself in that community. And often it's more educated people going into less educated areas. And uh, just even the what you eat, <laughs> the way you think, um, your aspiration on life is just massively different. So there's more cross-cultural training, I think, needs in that situation than sometimes going overseas, and yet often it's less given, okay? Because it is a cross-cultural experience in a big, big way, okay? Can be optimistic in how many people you can recruit, <laughs> you know? What happens is you think everybody will want to do this, and then you get very lonely when only three, four people decide they want to go and join you, Okay? And actually, the more people who do this over the nation, the less people there are <laughs> to go and do it. So there's a lot of these projects going on, and the, the resource base of people who want to move to do it uh, goes smaller. And then the third thing, which um, you, I, I've been involved in all these, so these are experience as well. After a while, you can create tension from the sponsoring network and the developing church. That would also be true of a mother church planting a daughter church as well. That uh, after a while, what looks easy and goes well, you, tensions could emerge because the philosophy, the pace, we're going to look at that in a little bit, can be different. And expectations of what you want to spend money on, you know, it just change. And therefore, there can be a tension. And I... Matt says I get kind of drawn into some uh, 
interesting situations. Sometimes these are some of the situations I get myself drawn into to try and untangle some of the uh, some of the thinking. Is this okay? Are you, you with me? One or two more, and then. Uh, so I'm doing these quick just to give you a feel. So the congregational multi-site, a little bit where you're going. I'm not quite sure which one it is. I think it's multi-site. Um, and, uh, so positives, larger or partner church near at hand. Okay, so that's different from when I first went to Manchester. Eight of us moved from the south, moved into Manchester to start. We knew nobody. We just had to start from scratch. And uh, I mean, we... Fortunately, it went well, but sometimes it takes years to dig something out. Um, the great thing about multi-site is when you've started one, you start another, there's friends nearby. Okay, and that's massive. That's why I'm a big fan of it, actually, to be honest with you. Second thing is that some people don't have to move house. Effectively, you're actually living in that part of the city that the next bit of the site is. So uh, the trouble with often parachuting people in is the whole experience of moving house, moving schools for kids, uh, getting yourself some friends can just take years, actually. And uh, often there is a bigger nucleus than there is in a standard church plant, which is, you, you understand that? Because, uh, you know, you carve it up a congregation. And... Uh, so there some of the positives. There's lots more positives. There's lots more negatives to all these. They're just a bit of a flavor. So what about the negatives? Okay. Yeah, three. I had a four or five of these, but I couldn't get them on the acetate, on the uh, slide. So these are three. Sometimes they revert from a missional to a pastoral model. Most churches get stuck at 70. You realize that that number, 60 to 80, is the average church in the UK. And it's actually the average church, I believe, in uh, the States as well. I've lived there for a couple of years. And you realize, actually, that 80, between 50 and 80, 50 and 90, is a unit that actually is a single cell. Do you, in, in, in the sense that everybody knows everybody's name in that group. Everybody knows the pastor or the leadership team. Everybody has access to the pastor and the leadership team. It's, you know, it's like, and it's very hard to break out of that. And quickly, that unit can become very pastoral because your needs are being met straight on. And so, what starts missionally can quite easily get sucked into a more pastoral model. That it's just uh, an observation with some kind of statistic background as well to that. Pioneers can become frustrated with extra admin. The thing with a multi-site or congregational model is you add an extra layer of organization into it. You realize that, don't you? Because um, if you're just church planting per se, it's you <laughs> and your church if you're multi-siting or congregational, whatever you want to call it, you're trying to keep the thing together. By the very nature of keeping the thing together, there is some checks and balances. There's some uh, administration. There's some central finance, and et cetera, and et cetera. That can all be positive. The negative, okay, is if you're a pioneer and just want to get on, <laughs> it sometimes doesn't suit you. And sometimes that's why the first one 
happens because the person who is the best suited to live in the breadth of that is the more pastoral person or organizational person. <laughs> so can you see the kind of where attention can happen there? Um, and it's just, you just, I say, just an observation, really. Um, I was with the um, Salvation Army a few weeks ago. They were asking me to talk to them about some of the situations they're in and uh, suddenly realized this is absolutely some of their difficulties, how much reporting there is and how frustrating that is to some of their pioneers. And uh, Anyway, I think they're going to ask me back. Uh, overtly optimistic starting with great numbers. Okay? When you start with eight, you're happy to get a warm body in the room to make it nine. Okay? I mean, that's, I say to my guys, I've just started, our, I say, our fourth site. So I think there's eight, eight of us. I was talking to our city guys. I said, if you, you're a warm body, if you turn up, it will be such a blessing. And uh, so we have this kind of saying now, just a warm body is a good person to have as an extra. Just everyone feels better. The trouble is when you're 60 or 80 warm bodies in the room, actually it's not so important that someone turns up that week. And therefore, therefore you can have an over-optimistic view that people will keep turning up, and when they don't, it doesn't hit you so hard. So, so, you know, I just... Some people go thinking, we're going to be 160 next week. It's just a... Uh, could actually throw you. Is that okay? Okay, one more, and then we're uh, and some of stuff. Just a small mobile team. These are all, you realize, they're all, I've, I've deliberately picked pick these, that they're all a kind of in the same theme. Do you understand? There's, there's other models as well. Uh, and this is like putting a small team in a place, pioneer team, mobile team, that really is not kind of just going into just an area, but even more into sometimes a people group, can be motivating and quickly form a cohesive community. You know, six or eight of you, you get friends very quick. It's just a fun gathering. We started a church in Salford years ago, four people. We used to call it the church in the car. Because actually they went everywhere together. It never grew for the first year, but fun, they had fun together. And uh, you know, they all fitted in uh, Ian's car. Uh, could be very cost-effective. And this team could target specific locations, okay? You can, you can actually do something in the city center with the poor and the homeless, for instance, with a group like that. It can be very project-specific. Okay, just a few negatives. They can often lack resources. Growth can be slow, and they can easily lack focus. And the relationships can be very close and over time become difficult for new people to get in. That is true of all the ones I've mentioned, even the congregational site one, if it stays that size too long. I've noticed even our city guys, where we started with three, got to 20, I said uh, to the guys who lead it, I said, it's not so true now, it's actually better. They just went through a bit of a phase where I noticed one or two people came in and it was hard. I just was observing that the cliques were forming very quickly because new people were talking to the new people they knew, okay? And, uh, and uh, you've just got to be very intentional of actually always, on whether it's Mordy's site, whether it's any of these models, to make sure that visitors feel not just welcome at the door, but fundamentally in on the in-crowd very, very quickly. And, and that's, 
And it, it's harder when you're smaller. The smaller and smaller it goes, funnily enough, it gets actually more of a challenge. Okay? Okay, I won't do that one because time is just uh, doing uh, a mission. Okay? So, so next uh, thing, which I'm just going to be a bit slower on, okay? I've got 15, 20 minutes to do the next few slides. Basically, managing pace, I think, is one of the biggest challenges to church planting or multi-site. Because there's a pace that's set by the main church. You know, Mosaic here has a pace. You realize that. It's, um, the trouble is, the pace that is now was not the pace when these guys started it. I was there in their home when they started uh, this church. And the pace then was much slower. <laughs> and, a few warm, and a few warm bodies would have been very helpful. And, those, and a bit of money would have been even more helpful, as I recall. The difficulty with pace is you tend to judge it by what it is at the time you are launching off. Does, does that make sense? So, that, so you're doing, you may go into sites, I think that's where you're going, or you may be church planted, uh, uh, as some of you guys are doing. And pace, I, this is what I find is the biggest thing that hurts people because they don't know how to pace themselves. So just a little bit here, I think uh, Acts 18, when Paul goes to Corinth, is just a helpful a bit of uh, advice for pace. You see, it says this in verse 1, After this, Paul left Athens and went into Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And because Claudia had offered all the Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. And every day he reasoned in the synagogue, tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Okay? You can see two paces here. Okay? Two paces, or two different um, uh, uh, types of pace that Paul had. First one was when he went in on his own and met a couple that I guess he'd never met before. They were refugees, been thrown out of Rome. He turned up as an intentional church planter. Um, his team were lagging behind. He got there before them. That often happens when we're church planted, that you are there before your team arrives. Now, your team can either arrive from somewhere else or you're trying to find them in situ, okay? Um, either way, what Paul did here was he slowed his pace right down. He just said this. He actually did church, if I could use that in terms of mission church, one day a week. So he went to the synagogue and reasoned in the synagogue. I would suspect that the rest of the time he was discipling Aquila and Priscilla, who actually became an integral part of his apostolic team. And it says these great words about them, that all the Gentile churches loved them and appreciated them, and my paraphrase of the end of Romans there. But they just had this reputation across the churches, because they'd planted at least three house churches 
Um, and, uh, but they started by make, making tents with, um, with Paul. And so often people go in and try and evangelize, try and recruit night after night and actually burn themselves out before they actually get started. So for Paul, he was not scared of being this great apostle. We, we would have said to Paul, get a day job. Don't, don't do this. We'll pay you some money. You know, that, that would be our instinct, wouldn't it? You don't, you don't tie your great apostle up making tents. <laughs> you know? But actually, Paul, he lived in this world of pace. He understood there was times and seasons. Ecclesiastes says that there's a season for everything. And this, the first season was, let's just take a break. Let's do a bit of reasoning in the synagogue. Let's do as much as we can with as little energy as we need. Okay? And let's earn some money. Let's, let's make it work for us. And uh, I think this is difficult when you've been in a fast-paced church. You know? It's difficult because what, what fruit is he seeing? Not a lot, you know. If he went to a, they had a, a Jerusalem prayer and fasting day that he had to be flown in. Of course, he can't be flown in, but just kind of get the concept. And he had to do a report on how is it going. Well, you know, I've got two disciples. And I've got a few interested people in the synagogue. And he just flown in again. How's it going, Paul? Two disciples. <laughs> there was a few more interested people in the synagogue. It doesn't sound absolutely earth-shattering, does it? But the reality is Paul was not scared of that time. And I just want to encourage us that I see too many pioneers burnt out before the big day. <laughs> because, you see, there was a big day when Silas and Timothy turned out. He was a two. Suddenly he got his crack team with him. And it says then, he devoted himself. Okay, stop making tents. He was going to go all out now to get this church cracking on at a pace. He was ready to put the energy in. If he was burnt out when Silas and Timothy arrived, you know what happened? They'd have said, go on a sabbatical chum for a couple of months, and then we'll start. No, he was ready. He got money aside. He had discipled a good couple. He was absolutely ready now to push on. So pace is, is really important. And when you do multi-site or when you church, everyone will have a different pace than the other. And it's important you understand that. And it's important when people are reporting back that competitiveness goes out, pace comes in, and realistic expectations come in. Is that okay? I think if I've got anything to say, it's the thing I say all around everywhere. Uh, because it's difficult, especially when you're comparing. It's not even like for like, but it feels like for like. Does that make sense? Okay. What time is it? Okay, a few more words. So, second thing, managing pace, managing growth expectations, which is it's, it's the other side of the coin, okay? I've, I, I've touched on this. It's interesting for Paul. Uh, in Acts 16.9, I always find this a fascinating a few verses. Because you see, Paul and his apostolic team was having some great success, and he was going to go in, I forget where he was going into, but he had a dream. It says this, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So, 
Basically, it talks about the Spirit stopping him going somewhere and something else stopping him going, and then he has this dream. He then talks to his team, and they concur that God's speaking to him. My feeling is if I'd had so much guidance at that point, I would think revival was going to break out as soon as I hit Philippi. You know, that would be my kind of way I'm wired. Because he doesn't talk, it's about the only place you get this big change of direction. Occasionally, in like Corinth, uh, God speaks to him and says, stay in the city because I've got many more people. So God does speak, you know, there are moments like that. This is a major directional change in terms of his, where, where he's going. And uh, somehow Luke sees it as quite important, writes the narrative. The next 16, from there we travel to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of that district of Macedonia. We stayed there several days. And on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. So Paul goes into this city, he walks around, spends time. There's no synagogue there by the sound of it. Where there's no synagogue, if there's any God-fearers or Jews, a small number of them would probably go down the river uh, and, and congregate to pray. So it just shows there wasn't a lot there, actually, of his normal people group that he uh, missioned into, first off. And he was not unhappy to start slow again, Smally, he gets into Lydia's house. She begs him, come into my house. Starts a little house church there. Casts a demon out of a girl who's predicting stuff, who causes uproar with her owners. And uh, makes him, he was put in prison. In prison, he sees the jailer saved. And then soon after that, it gets very difficult for him. And he has to leave, basically. And uh, so he leaves not a big group of people actually by the side of it, although this group of people become some of his most staunch co-workers for the gospel. In fact, he, he talks about the Philippian church in, those, uh, in, in, in that way, you know, that they partnered with him. And they were, when he was in prison once and people were speaking against him, they were so disturbed because it was Christians speaking against him that they sent a person over to actually say, come on, Paul, this is not fair. And he, Philippians 1 is just a great talk about. He said, I don't care if the gospel is being preached, even if they're doing it out of bad motives. Uh, you know, he's, it's just a, it, but it just shows the love between him and the Philippi church. Why am I saying this? You, sometimes when you're starting new things, prophecy gets quite big, <laughs> okay? There's sometimes a surge of prophesying and expectation in a new day. And we've just got to be careful that we interpret that correctly, okay? Because it can make us get a little bit beyond what is. And timing and time frame are absolutely crucial to any expectation of prophecy. Most prophetic statements tend to be interpreted now. Do you understand? It's like, and that's one of the difficulties so that's what I've said about Paul. I think I'd have interpreted, come over to Macedonia as, hey, we're going to have a massive church off the bat. That's the way I would do it. Paul was not scared that it was going to take a bit of time, but the prophetic word is true. Come over here and a church will be gathered. And uh, in the end, it was a cracking church. It was a great church. And uh, I think it's so important 
that we manage growth expectations. And it's a little, it's a difficult one between going from faith to, res- to kind of what is normal, Do you know, I can't, or lack of faith, you know? Sometimes people say when I'm teaching this sort of stuff, well, where does faith come into it? Do you understand? Know, I think there's a just a, and I'm trying to teach and say, it's got to be faith, but faith actually doesn't mean over-optimism that is out there based on prophetic words or expectation that's been misinterpreted. Do you, are you hearing what I'm trying to say? Just important, because hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. So if you go in with the wrong expectation, there's too many sick hearts of pioneers who fundamentally felt it should have been this. And God said, and actually it's been hard work. <laughs> and my house fell down once on the back of it. And, you know, people said, what does, what's God saying about that? It's almost like, should you have been there? Should you be doing it? I'm just saying... No, it was a bad builder that built it. We're just keeping on uh, going. You, uh, it's just important that we get some realistic expectation of faith, but not here. <laughs> and I say it's difficult. It's a really difficult one to navigate through because uh, you don't want lack of faith either. Okay. Okay, we're reaching into the urban poor. Um, and uh, if you're doing that, then you've got to go for gospel and society change. It's just, no, you cannot, you've got to go both. Some people go into with too much society change and no gospel. Others go in with all the gospel and no society change. And you've got, it's a parallel, they're two feet going into the same things. I said, I've got time, I'll just do the challenges we're facing uh, going into the urban poor. This is the biggest challenge, in my opinion, fatalism. What is will always be. Three generations of unemployed means the next three or four generations will be unemployed. And you're part of it. It's just fatalism is the killer in the UK. It's not just a Hindu problem. It's actually uh, an urban poor problem in the UK massively, which is why politicians can't change it. There's something ingrained in society now that aspiration has gone and fatalism here. So it's big. It's, if, we can, if we crack this one, we'll change society, I believe. Lack of opportunity. Okay? I've just, I can't, these are, the lack of choices or the poor choices that people make. We've got a, we set up a new charity um, and we've called it Choices. <laughs> just fundamentally into our poor area because we want people to make good choices but we also want to offer them opportunities to make good choices as well. It's a long haul, quick fix. That's why five-year parliaments are no good for solving these problems. And that's why quick fix churches don't solve these problems. This is a, it's taken three generations to get where we are. It's going to take a generation at least to get out of it. That's just the way it is. And we can't, you know, and that's the, it's just the way it is. You, it takes a to get a mindset changed, it does, you know, there's, a, there's, a, it, there's something of God <laughs> and there's something of discipling society change. It's like sanctification. <laughs> it just takes time. Okay? So you need both. And it takes loads of resources. And the rich need to help the poor. Okay? Big time. That's a whole talk I could do, but it's just... Just encouraging you. That's what you're going for. And I'm going to finish with this. 
okay? Because uh, the thing with going congregational or multi-site or church-planted is sometimes you lose the perspective of the city, okay? We want Leeds to be reached. We want uh, Manchester to be reached. We want The Hague. We want other places. We want people to know about us. We, don't want, to, we want to be a light that's not hidden, okay? And I, always, I love this uh, in Jerusalem. See, Jerusalem was full of house churches, actually. Whatever they looked like, that's, you know, churches in people's homes were just everywhere. I told you that in Acts 2. Um, and... Uh, but you see, they all gathered together. And, and uh, one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at a time of prayer at three in the afternoon. A crippled man from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. And then just jumping down to verse 11, uh, they prayed for him. <laughs> he gets healed. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. There was something in the city here. There was something up in the temple. There was something that was going to be of, of, of city, uh, town uh, proportions to this healing. It was not locked up into a neighborhood or into a community. This was a public thing done by a public people in a massive public place. And... Uh, so, what was the outcome of that? It says this in Acts 4.16, because after that event, the next two chapters of Acts just unpacks this, because Peter and John get thrown into prison, they get interrogated, they get warned. But there's two things I just love that was kind of uh, the, the statements from the leaders of the city of Jerusalem. It says this in 4.16, what are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle. There's something about impact, citywide impact, that happened because it was in the temple court. It was done in a public arena, and everybody knew. One of the challenges of just doing neighborhood church is you lose citywide impact. I believe in both, hyperlocal community churches but linked together citywide because we want these sort of impact, don't we? We want the days when the newspapers say, hey, something remarkable has happened. It's gossiped around the place. Did you know? And that doesn't happen in a neighborhood situation. It happens at the temple colonnade. You know, it happens in the public square, in the, in the public uh, place. And then Acts 5, they keep going. Uh, 27. This is all from that one incident, okay? <laughs> this is, they're trying to unpack it. And uh, it says this, having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the high Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, okay? It's just kind of out there. He said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Wouldn't it be great to say we've filled Leeds, we've filled Manchester, We've filled some of the cities with the teaching of Jesus. So, citywide, hyperlocal churches. I believe in them. I'm trying to do it. Lord, I pray that you'll just help us as we go about reaching the great cities of England and Europe and the rest of the world. I pray for these guys. I praise you for the growth that's come out of Matt and Pippa's house. I want to pray, Lord God, it would continue 
Lord God, through the next phase of this church's development, that, Lord God, we will see some citywide impact, a neighborhood change, society change, the urban poor reached with the good news of Jesus. That's our heart's desire, Lord God. Amen. Thank you.